Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and upcoming data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We do this by hearing directly from top industry leaders out there in the field today, and we hear their stories, their lessons learned, their mistakes, and how they got to where they are. My name is Felipe Flores, and I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in again. Today's episode, we are speaking with Annie South. She's the general manager of data at Me Bank. Annie leads a very large team there at the bank. And before that, she has had many senior roles in the banking space, including ANZ, NAB, JP Morgan. And before that, she was at consulting. I actually met Annie a few years ago at ANZ. We first met while we were both working in that bank, and it was a pleasure to see her again and talk through her journey, lessons learned, and she has such a rich and fascinating background. I hope you enjoy the episode. Please let me know what you think of it. Hi, this is Felipe. Today, I'm sitting down with Annie, Annie South. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for making the time. my pleasure. I'm so excited to have you on the show. (laughs) So first off, tell me, how did you get into the world of data? Oh, long, long story. I started off life as a maths teacher, actually. I bump into wow. students every now and again. It's it's embarrassing. <laughs> and someone the other day called Miss South across <laughs> the train. <laughs> <laughs> Put together people behind me. And four years of maths teacher, and I, I really enjoyed that. Wow. Uh, there's nothing better, I guess, than seeing light switch on in young kids. Yeah. So secondary maths, and obviously maths is my, my love. The only thing that I was not bad at, I uh, wasn't, you know, everything else I was pretty <laughs> mediocre at, but shone up maths at school and wanted to make a career of it and uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do when I left uni. So, in, you know, ended up being a maths teacher and, as I said, loved it. But after a while, I realised the career progression wasn't going to be that fast. Yes. So you, you've basically got to wait for people to pass away ahead, ahead <laughs> of you to get to promoted to senior teacher. So and uh, the other thing was that I, I'm gay and I wasn't able to really be out at that time. This wow. was the early 90s uh, and yeah. um, I wasn't really the done thing. So I didn't want to live in fear of losing my job and being discovered and I wasn't yes. particularly comfortable not talking about a very important aspect of my personal life. So I started to think about alternative careers and I was doing a master's degree in mathematics education and I just sort of translated that into research. So as a research fellow at La Trobe Uni for a while, just looking into um, mathematics and how it gets acquired. And at some point I became really interested in, I guess, teaching maths through nonverbal methods. Uh-huh. And this was sort of mid-90s at the time and I became really enamoured with the idea of teaching maths using animation. It was all this beautiful vision wow. in my head about how you could make things interactive and because a lot of kids get left behind because of their English skills but yes. they've got maths skills and I, I really wanted, I guess, to focus on that. And that was the intent I looked into how I could kind of re just take that stepping stone from maths teacher to animator of mathematics lessons and um, the only thing that was available was a four-year degree at uh, Swinburne Uni and it was the first intake that they'd had for their Bachelor of Multimedia, they called it at the time, and um, I just sort of thought, well, if you're serious about it, you may as well knuckle down and go back and commit and it was going to be an interesting journey anyway. So I went back to uni and and did that and the third year of that was a sandwich year and it was industry-based learning and I um, landed a job with the State Library and um, kind of didn't look back. That was my first, I guess, IT job and um, went part-time with my study. So I completed my degree but sort of transitioned from that. I still remember the first 
lecture that we had for the multimedia degree. Yeah. It was a class filled with young, newly uh, out-of-school kids like me when I had finished school, really didn't know what they wanted to do, filled the auditorium. And one of the lecturers came in and said, do you know what, you people, when you, by the time you graduate, you'll be going into jobs that don't exist today. And I thought, come on, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Sack of the sauce, following you. Anyway, Fuchichescu, if you're listening, you were right and I was wrong because um, one of the jobs I went into was called Information Architect and it didn't exist at the time that I'd started my degree, but it did by the end. And I guess this would be one of the things that I'd say to people that are looking to make data a career is you're not going to be able to predict the roles that exist in 12 months, 18 months, three years' time. I think it's a one of these received wisdoms that's not correct is to think that we can actually exert forward control over our career. So there's yes. some things that I've sort of, um, I guess, that I try and do now to, to make my career what I call future ready. So one of those is to not specialise in a particular technology, but specialise in a capability and just see the technologies that you're using are the things that are being used to do it today, but not necessarily the technologies that are being used to do it tomorrow. I've seen this happen to people a lot throughout their career, particularly on the technology side of the fence, is that if they're specialised in a particular technology set and it's diminishing in popularity but increasing in salary or day rate because there's very few skills on the market. It's a cul-de-sac that you can end up in. You can, you know, it's almost like a golden handcuff. You can end up addicted to a very high day rate um, but very few other opportunities available on the market and slipping by you is the opportunity to continue to keep your skills current, your technologies current, so to speak. So... I'd say, looking back on that, that was really the seed of the lesson that I got from that. So, And then from there, information architect, which was really, yeah. what, as we would describe it, unstructured information management. And I did that for about five or six years, but I was quite interested in getting into this data stuff. And it was the unsexiest part of any yeah. technology. Yeah. You know, it was just so grey cardigan <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, it was just so not hot. And um, it just really appealed to the mathematician in me. You know, it's yeah. just kind of made sense. So I made a little bit of a beeline for it and I ended up kind of, I wouldn't say bluffing my way, but I talked my way into a job as a data architect at Telstra. But it wasn't in technology. It was in finance and it was a newly established team called the Office of Data Management. And so it was sort of data governance and I'd, I could bring... Yeah unstructured information management practices that yes. they thought might be quite valuable to apply to the structured data domain. And I think that's the second thing that I'd say is that whatever background that you've got in something, it's always going to add value when you transition somewhere else. Mm. You can bring a unique angle that people that you're working with can't see or bring to the conversation. So don't think that investing four years as a maths teacher or five years in unstructured information management is flushed down the toilet now that you're working in structured data. It's actually an overlay. It's almost like a French polish on a table. You know, each is a layer that gives a beautiful polish in the end uh, as you're building it up. So That's um, so true. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, and that's not thought of enough, I think. It's a, that's a great point. I think that's the thing is that people tend to think very negatively about their competitiveness mm. and that they're falling behind, you know, there's this kind of emotional panic, so to speak. All experience is good and it's all grist for the mill. It's just a matter of finding a manager that values that sort of approach. 
then I basically I was instructed data and it was just sort of gone on up from there. I moved into banking, moved to the UK for six years. My partner was Scottish, so I worked for Cat Gemini and Consulting. Did a year of that and worked out I was um, I was too honest. You know, <laughs> they were trying to sell me as all sorts of things, and I ended up in some very strange gigs across the UK trying to pretend that I was an expert on search optimization and uh, this and that. And I was just like, I can't do this. Worked for JP Morgan and then NAB and um, and then we moved back to Australia. So most recently I'm general manager of data for Members Equity Bank and I'm just I think this is my sole job, so to speak. So I'm just really? enjoying it so much. Yeah. Why do you say that? Oh various reasons. I think I've loved banking because Banking's got a really bad name and rightly so for some of the behaviours and some of the decisions that the companies have made as a company. But at the end of the day, it's a really important social service. Finance is just a really important thing to enable people to, to get ahead with their lives. And I think me, the bank, <laughs> it's always a matter of confusion. So me represents for me something that's a bit more aligned to my core values and that is that we stand for much more than just profits for shareholders yeah. was re- originally conceived about helping tradies basically get a mortgage and get stability of, of housing more than anything else and it was erected during the 90s when it was perceived that some of the bigger banks were gouging with the profits with the mortgages so it was kind of done in response to that and mm. it gives us an ideology and a starting point that's a lot more than just how we're making a profit it actually you know the mantra is helping all Australians get ahead and for me that translates us to shifting helping Australians shift from living paycheck by you know, paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. So that ethos really infuses the way that we operate, I think. I'd like to think. We don't always get it right, but we always care about the customer and try and make the best decision with their interests in mind. A couple of things that I'd mention, I think, is yeah. insight for people that were just starting their career. So one is just to be thinking about the industries that mm. you're moving into. And this is what I tell people that are off wanting career advice as well when they're constructing their CV. This is my lens and not everybody's lens. One of the things I look for is kind of a consistent arc. So whether that arc is remaining within a similar industry mm-hmm. or remaining within a similar way of engaging in the workforce. So there's broadly in my mind, there's three ways of engaging in the workforce. One is through contracting, the day rate contractor. And then you've either got a recruitment company that's kind of skimming something off your day rate to help you with the payroll. You can be working for a consulting company and then they kind of pimp you out to various places. And then the third one is when you're working directly for a company. And broadly, I would say that I think it worked well for me to start off as a day rate contractor. Consulting wasn't for me, but that might be also a good start. And the reason why I'd say that is, particularly with a consulting background, you have an opportunity to work in multiple different industries for multiple different clients, curating multiple different skill sets. And this is quite helpful for you when you're trying to sort out who you are and what you're good at. But then if you want to have a sense of traction impact Mm. and also someone looking after your career, you probably want to be working directly for a company. That's when, I guess, the longevity of service is very helpful for your promotion and your ability to step up the rungs, if that's your thing, or into other opportunities within an organisation. So I think that's, it's worth thinking about that. And in terms of the industries as well, I think for me, again, I'd say find something that aligns broadly with your core values. I can't ever see myself working, for instance, for a weapons company. I just would have a lot of trouble with that. I work for a bank, some might might say that's beyond their moral, you know, (laughs) acceptable line. But um, for me, I sort of feel like I can influence from the inside. 
and try and, you know, have a good heart and around some of those decisions. The other thing that I'd say is look at industries that are not dying. Yes. Because you, you don't want to be having to, the conversation internally is all going to be about justifying a spend and rather than getting on with the job. Any sort of industry that's having its um, business model disrupted, unless you're kind of on the edge of the disruption side of that, I'd be thinking very carefully about whether to move in that. That's if I was starting my career now. Yeah. Having said that, you know, very often you don't have the choice and sometimes a job is better than no job. So, (laughs) you know, you've got to start from somewhere and make small steps. That is so interesting. Tell me about the, I love the words that you use that working internally in a company, you said you can get traction, you can have impact Impact. and that you seek to influence. How have those played out in, in your career as opposed to some of the other ways that you tried in terms of work, uh, work? It's probably hard for me to draw on my experience because I was in my early career a contractor mm-hmm. yep. and more latterly permanent. But I think one of the misconceptions that we have is that organisations are a machine mm-hmm. that's predictable and if we do this then it's predictable that we'll get outcome X or Y or Z. Organisations are extremely complex, quite random, organic, chaotic things. Yes. And in order to have any kind of hope of influencing or creating autonomy for yourself or doing something because you believe this is the right thing for the company to do, you need to have immersed yourself in that environment for a long enough time to have learned the ways of the game and what Mm. probabilistically you can do to get the sorts of outcomes that you want. I think this is the thing with consulting or potentially even contracting. It's all care and no responsibility. I'll come in and I'll deliver the requirements document or I'll come in and write the strategy, but you're not actually responsible for the execution of that strategy and you never learn, I guess, the full, deeper, richer picture of what the pragmatic realities are on the execution of that strategy, why that hasn't worked. And just looking at the team that I've established internally at me, it's taken me a lot longer to get the culture and expertise and capability of the team up and running than what I thought it would. And that was more because I had an unrealistic view of how long it would take more than anything else. But it's just so rewarding to look at this team of people and know that they wouldn't exist if if you didn't have some hand in it and the way that they're operating and what they're delivering, they're delivering really well. I guess it's that teacher in me. Again, it's uh, seeing the light switch on in other people's eyes is just a Best struggle for me. Just the most amazing thing is empowering people. And I think maybe for the the listenership as well, it's like that's kind of what data is all about. Human beings become empowered by information and knowledge and we all have a hand in in helping people live better lives by providing insight, by providing information, you know, by empowering them, really. Wow. And what what does your team look like at the moment? We've grown from, I think it was nine in the first instantiation. I, I joke about this quite a lot, but I walked into the organisation in September 2015 and, or October 2015 and I had an org chart underneath me and no funding and no people. And I, <laughs> in the org chart, I had two roles. It was data scientist and data analyst. And yeah. I, I just looked at it and I thought, okay, yeah, you really do need someone who knows about data. I do feel a little bit like there's a lot of people kind of rushed into data from various different locations. And for those of us that have kind of been doing the hard graph for many years now, we see things in a slightly different way, I would say. But the way I describe it is what I've set up is more like the librarians 
and we're building a library. And I would regard the data scientists as the people that come in and use the books. They infer things and perhaps there's not so much a tight delineation nowadays because I think that there's a number of data science roles that are advertised that do expect high technical expertise and the ability to use some of these emergent technologies. But I do think fundamentally when I talk to my team and various people, that in terms of personality, it seems to me that there's a slightly different personality that is attracted towards data science than attracted towards data engineering. And broadly, that would be somebody that's interested in technology as opposed to somebody that's actually interested in the data. If push came to shove and you just had a spreadsheet filled with data or you just had, you know, some cloud services, what would you choose? You know, you just want some sample data to run through all these beautiful technologies. That sort of lands you on one side of the fence or the other. It's not to say that capable people can't be doing both, but I still think that the data science role has been almost hijacked in a way by a lot of people that it's almost like a dot boom. They see a lot of money associated with it, such a hot area. It's a hot recruiting area. There's a lot of people recruiting for it. Again, I would say look very carefully at a lot of those position descriptions and the way they've been articulated because if it's all over the shop and it's just a schmozzle, you're probably not going to be reporting to a manager that really has a good vision for what it is that they need. And that might be the right thing for you. Maybe you want that ambiguity in order to play but then it might not be the right kind of mentorship that you need at this point in your career. I think with in terms of data science as a career, call me old-fashioned, I know I'm Gen X, but I would just call them statisticians and it's been a long and venerable career and it will remain a long and venerable career. It's just that we've got new tools to sort of execute on, on what it is that they want to do. So if I was thinking about the sort of personality, the sort of background that I would be expecting to see in somebody that's laying out their table and badging themselves as a data scientist, I would say in order to be competitive, you must have a PhD in statistics. You have to have some credibility in handling the tools. And generally, as a manager, I sit back and I think, I really don't want to necessarily hire that in the sorts of roles that I deal with Mm. because these people are highly intelligent. They're usually looking for novelty. They're usually looking for intellectual challenge. And if you're to work directly for Well, traditionally, these roles have fallen into insurance and they've fallen into investment banking. So actuaries, quants, researchers, very often, you know, these are your propeller-headed statisticians, so to speak. There's probably a handful of other areas where traditionally they they reside as well. And there would certainly be um, new jobs that require statisticians for them. But what I would say is that If I'm thinking about that sort of person that needs a lot of novelty, I don't know that necessarily going in and working for one company would cut it because basically if you look at somebody that's a credit risk analyst, you know, is trying to predict doubtful debt or a fraud analyst or um, something along those lines, traditionally market risk or liquidity risk analyst, they build a model and then they try and enhance that model to get better to reduce the error margins within their predictions. They never kind of reaching into their deep, rich toolkit of statistical methodologies to look differently at it. Maybe people might challenge me here, but I would have thought that these models, so there's some niche companies and some of the big consulting companies now are really hiring what they call a stable of data scientists. And I think that that for me would be more the true data scientist. That's more where I would be heading because you're going to get a lot more variety in, mm. in the sorts of problems that are presented to you. That's just my thoughts on yeah, um, the future of data science. I wrote a few more notes on that. Statistician working directly for a company, quants or actuaries. One thing I would say with data scientists is 
I would really strongly encourage them if that's where somebody's seeing their future. We're at a knowledge frontier. Yeah. And if you've got a day job unrelated to it or barely related to it, don't despair because I think that there are so many opportunities out there for you to make your niche. So if you look at Philippe, what you're doing in terms of it's innovative, it's a bit entrepreneurial, you don't know where it's going, but you're following your nose and you're following your passion. And that's the sort of thing that I would be encouraging people to do because there's so many little sparks that can be turned into a flame, be turned into a career in the future for people. Um, and if you come out of university with a PhD and you're struggling to land your first data science job, take something a bit lesser, but still continue to look at what opportunities you can make for yourself and not be too despondent about it. Yeah, exactly. That's really good. <laughs> and what other types of skills do you have in your team and in your yeah, teams? You've asked and your me about department? that, didn't you? And yeah, what type Let of me tell you about my yeah. team a little bit more. Yeah. So really, one of the reasons why I guess I'm so enjoying what I'm doing is that yeah. this is the first opportunity I've had to put into practice what I've been complaining about or observing in other organisations. Yeah. So my roles have been equally on within a business team or within technology. Yeah. But wherever I've worked, what I've observed is typically in a larger organisation, there's a data warehouse project executing where they're rebuilding a data warehouse and it's pretty much dominated by technology mm -hmm. and it's pretty much politically under siege with the this is costing too much and taking too long discussion. And if the company has enough patience to fund the preparation of that data long enough, it will realise value, but what tends to happen is that politically it gets overtaken by a single stakeholder, whether that's finance, whether that's marketing, it doesn't matter who it is. Second broad area of uh, activity that I see going on yeah. is what I would call a business-owned warehouse asset, mm -hmm. and this is some... Um, it's sitting on a business within a business team. It's got a reporting BI team on it, potentially an advanced analytics team, but it's only supported by the ops team within technology. And broadly, it's a platform that's run amok. Mm -hmm. You know, it's responded to the real needs of business stakeholders in a very short time frame yeah. and probably at the expense of the platform sustainability and the platform architecture. And so then you start having issues like your regulator coming in and saying you don't know where the lineage of your regulatory reports is coming from and things along those lines. And look at all the, you're generating your, these calculations out of it and uh, we don't believe that they're accurate and a whole bunch of um, reasons. And basically you've got two information environments that are fragmented and not cohesive or consistent and you've never kind of realised or been able to create a, a single platform that provides for multiple business stakeholders. Mm. And then the third team that generally exists and probably in all likelihood sitting in another business unit is the data governance and management team. You sit there and make edicts around how data should be managed and um, perhaps providing definitions that should be aligned to and yep. metrics that should be aligned to and this is what should happen. And when I look at those three worlds, they're so divorced from each other yes. um, and everybody kind of knows it but nobody actually calls it out and yeah <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. so what I've been able to do here I guess is bring those three worlds together in underneath me so I've um, took the existing warehouse asset and the information sets and the, yep. the team that looked after that and had responded to business need established a team of data engineers that would start rebuilding a new platform and the third one was create from scratch pretty much a data governance or data management team as we call them and then most recently is the data architecture team that's mm -hmm. kind of like the when you look at 
we're governed by APRA and one of their credential practice guides is uh, 235, managing data risk, and that makes requirements around how we need to be managing lineage and the art data architecture and things along those lines. So this is the team that looks after our reference data, has our reference data management system and our master data. So, and we've got a platform architect as well. And most recently, we're starting to bring in more capacity and expertise around project management, so to speak. So that's the team that I've constructed and it's been amazing journey just to sort of put theory into practice all, yes. on all all of these dimensions and bring it to fruition and it's only recently that really things have started to fall completely into place with me so I keep saying to the team almost apologetically nobody ever gives you a book on how to create a data team but uh, we're doing a pretty good job I think at the moment on how that might play out and We've still got lots of problems to solve, but we've certainly our worst days are behind us and our best days are ahead. So in the past, what I've seen happen is you've got an existing warehouse and then you start getting demand to pipe the data from the existing warehouse onto the new platform. It's what I call a daisy chain architecture. Mm -hmm. So here we've switched that about. So we've basically plumbed the data onto the new platform. We started to pipe it back to the old one and call it the forking solution. Wow. And yeah, it's... I mean, it's a platform in a transition state, but we've been able to basically achieve looking at the data environments holistically and making sure that we're still able to meet short-term business outcomes on data that's as built. But it's up to us now where, what platform or what environment that we build that in. And it's really, I guess, the two coming together, looking at the demand and how you get handovers, like how you get handover from that short-term, yes, there's a business case, but how that drops down into platform uplift funding and uh, we're just sort of being still a bit wet on how we're actually doing that in practice but basically it's meant that we've combined an agile methodology with a waterfall methodology for the two sorts of you know slow moving lift and shift to the the faster moving quick business outcomes so the model that I've gone in with is really I guess you'd call it federated is to say I, I still believe that Data is best interpreted in context of the business where that interpretation is meaningful. I don't want my team to be credit risk experts Mm. or product experts or these are very specialised skills. We have an overlap with that. They have an overlap with data skills, but we need to partner really well to ensure that they can do the analytics that they need to do. And what does that piece look like when they go to essentially your stakeholders or your internal customers when they go to use the data and the data platforms? What does that piece look like for them? Well, at the moment, a lot of the work that we've done in the new platform build has been silent to them because we've been basically re-plumbing under the hood. Mm. We have a very thriving, what we call the business data working group, and that's because a lot of the requirements for the new platform have come from a lift and shift from the old platform. We've been able to just lift up to them definitional work or mappings or integration issues where we feel that there were problems or things that they weren't seeing. And so that's the kind of working group where we develop common definitions. The projects that we've delivered to in terms of the platform journey, so the new platform, the first one was a data feed to our liquidity reporting platform basically so that's a third party platform and we've basically send the data through to them but we were able to save the bank I think it was 1.7 million dollars a year just by wow. um, shifting the delivery time frame for the data so increased in the speed to delivery yeah. more than anything else but most recently as well we've we won't be able to know until it goes to market but we've got a securitization pool that we were able to look across both sets of 
both platforms, both sets of data from our source systems. And um, we think that that'll probably be one or $2 million more competitive for us. So the project spend is $2 million a year. So it's, yeah. in effect, we're paying for ourselves from the bottom line. And we expect a lot of that's going to accelerate moving forward as well. Next, next year is going to be very exciting for us. Very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And tell me, how was it at the beginning when you're first setting up the team after coming into that org structure? Yeah, that was two yeah. roles. <laughs> two roles yeah. How did you start it? Uh, yeah, it was pretty hairy. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I have to say that the people that were first in the team were amazing. Yeah. And then Perhaps this is another piece of career advice, but you'll never get ahead by being excellent at what everybody else is doing. Yes. Try and be mediocre at what nobody else is doing. One of the things I thought, what am I going to do really differently? One of those things is the way that I recruit. So I kind of turn recruiting on its head and it makes it a bit slower, but uh-huh. I actually look at, when I advertise for roles, I look at CVs myself. And I respond individually to say, this is why, you know, you've not got it. And I'll re- also reach out to people that I think might be a good fit for the team, but not a good fit for the role to see if we can open up opportunities. Mm. Um, probably shouldn't be saying this because I, I do, on average, we have 120 to 150 applicants for the roles that I've advertised. Oof. So it is high touch, but, you know, my teaching background's helped with that kind of volume as well. And it's something that I've really enjoyed because it helps keep me close to what's happening in the industry. And when we bring people in, it's really interesting to grill them about what's going on in other companies and that's a really interesting slant. But I think what we've tried to do to attract talent, I wouldn't say necessarily that that approach to recruitment landed me the talent that I got. I was lucky to get some fantastic managers. And one of the things I, I look for as well is not just their technical expertise, but also their kindness. And that's not a word you hear very often in, mm. in business, but it's something that I value enormously. And I sort of think that it's just a, a myth that you can't combine, you know, a hard-nosed business lens with compassion for people. In fact, I would argue the opposite is that you can't have a hard-nosed business lens unless you have compassion for people. You deliver through your people and they're human beings and I hope that they're kind and give me the benefit of the doubt when I'm having difficult personal circumstances and I know that they offer the same for their their teams and their people tend to really enjoy them as managers as well. So I think that I was quite lucky with that. But the other thing that I've done is, which, you know, is an experiment for me as well. I had been a manager previously in a couple of roles, but with this one, I've sort of taken it up a level. And I say this, and I know very little about it, but somebody mentioned it to me, is the servant leader model. And I try to adopt that in terms of seeing very much my role as that of equal of my team, but just a different role. You know, it's like on a football field, we're in different positions and I've got a job to do and they've got a job to do. And one of the most important things that I try to do and be good at is what I call a political escalation. So this is where they're blocked or somebody's giving them grief or just some kind of problem that they're meeting. And there's three responses to that. You know, it's one is um, I go away and do something about it because it's within my power to do and it's a conversation with another GM, so it's appropriate at my level. One is I see, and I'm trying to get a lot better at this, is to leave it with them but to coach them how they can respond to that and not necessarily take the initiative and the autonomy away from them. And the third one is if it's something that neither they nor I can do anything about, how do we make our peace with that? Mm. 
So those kind of responses, um, for me, I describe it as me running around the team trying to play defence yeah. and trying to intercept the bricks that people are throwing at them yeah. and to create a safe working space for them. Because I've always sort of felt with my career, talented people attract other talented people. We like working with each other. And then toxic people that are more into games mm -hmm. than delivering outcomes for a business tend to attract other toxic people because they're quite focused on the games. Talented people step back from the games and step forward towards other talented people. And I thought if I can get two or three really great talented people in here that really care about delivering more than anything else and having a sense of impact and in the right environment stretching their legs and seeing how far a data team can go words going to get out and other people are going to want to join here because that's going to be the value proposition you know yeah. it's come here there's no games well there are games actually but I'm I'm the one that's kind of trying to dampen them down for you and just get on with the job and stretch your legs with it as I said that's great yeah so it's good. It's really good. And we had a town hall today and one of the things I said, town hall is where we get all of IT together and we, we have to talk about our teams. We did today. The best moments that I have at work are where I can sit back and, and I just watch these people, these incredibly talented, passionate, lovely people standing around a computer, chewing the fat about the problem that they're trying to solve, challenging each other. You know, it's just lovely. It's just a really lovely environment to immerse yourself in. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah, it sounds like utopian. Yeah, it is, yeah. Let me ask you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Let me ask you about your background and then having ended up in technology. Because sometimes a lot of people that would like to get into technology or into data, sometimes they feel like they can't or shouldn't mm -hmm. or that their background limits them from make, being able to make that step. And in your case, being a math teacher and then doing multimedia yeah. <laughs> and now being a general manager in a technology yeah. area general manager of data how was that transition and, and and what do you say what would you say to people that would like to move into an yeah, area that that, I mean that's a really great question and we'll, we'll move on to the imposter syndrome yeah. because I think it's yeah. kind of touching on that a little bit but you know for me this is almost identity and I'm very strong with my team to say I'm an information management professional I'm a data mm -hmm. professional yeah in the Game of Thrones, I'm part of House of Data. I'm not yeah. House of Technology and I'm not House of Business. I'm House of Data, very stridently so. Yeah. Um, all of my newcomers, I'll blow the secret here, but all of my newcomers, I, I wanted to do again, you know, what can I do differently to these people that are coming into the team to give them a sense of the vision and the passion that I have for where it is that we want to be? And so I give them a little speech. I set up what I call the Magical Mystery Tour and I give them a little speech where I say, if you think about it, bankers have been around since the 1400s. You think about the medical profession, you know, maybe 17, 1800s. In the 1800s, there were two types of doctors. There was a surgeon barber and there was a physician. And a physician was someone that gave you drugs and the surgeon was somebody that cut your hair and, you know, cut your arm off if you needed it because they had a sharp <laughs> knife. And you look at how many specialisms there are in medicine today. Mm. It's orthopedics, paediatricians, so many different specialisms. Somebody through their career saw the vision and went out. They were the intellectual pioneer to create practice yeah. and knowledge. And that is our heritage as we stand today. I have no doubt that the data professionals of tomorrow, we will have so many different specialisms within our profession. I don't think that we will necessarily be seen as technologists mm. and 
maybe it's ego, but I've always felt that it is going to be the prestige profession of tomorrow. Yeah. Absolutely, because it's about human empowerment, human insight. It's about direction of where we're going as a community, as a society. And the sorts of people that we want in charge of that, it's very important that they're bringing the right lens. Yes. So in terms of being a technologist, I don't necessarily identify as that. But that's one thing that I say to my staff is that you need to define who you are. And that would bring me to one of, you know, another, I guess, important piece of career advice that I'd like to go backwards in time and give myself. And that is to say... As received wisdom, we, we're told and we're almost indoctrinated that we go through school and it's very well defined, there's very clear ways of succeeding, you do this test, you get it right, you get an A, etc., etc. And they're pretty much teachers' view of life is that you go out and then you get on the first step of employment and then if you do that step really well, you'll be moved up to the second step and Probably by mid to late career, you're going to end up near the top of the staircase. Mm. And if you haven't done that, then you're a, a failure. And what I would say to people is just take that way of thinking and just throw it out the door yes. because it's just so useless. There are so few formal career opportunities where you get an opportunity to move up a step. And in fact, to be in a company and perform well at one step is probably the worst thing that you can do for moving up a step because now you've created a dependence in Mm -hmm. your manager on you doing that well. So what I would do in terms, probably this is the most important thing to continue to have a future ready career. The most important piece of knowledge that you need is self-insight. You need to understand yourself. And if you're not consistently questioning what is it that you love, what is it that brings you in in the morning, some people open up an inbox and find 120 emails and get a complete zing. You know, where's your (laughs) dopamine fix coming from? (laughs) Oh, look at all this beautiful novel news that I've got to sift through. Some people come in in the morning and see 120 emails and get like completely dragged into the shit, you know, I've got now 120 additional things on my to-do list. What you need to do is the work that only you can do, and that is understand yourself. And so everything in your early career should be about trying on different clothes, you know, trying different roles, every formal opportunity that comes along once every three or six months. I can tell you there'll be 100 to 200 informal opportunities that pass by your desk every day. Opportunities to define yourself, opportunities to explore yourself, opportunities to credentialise yourself, opportunities to accumulate in a very small way a portfolio of experiences that now position you in terms of your confidence for your next opportunity. And if you want to be promoted, the worst thing that you can do is perform your job really well. You have to do your manager's job in some part. Correct. That's the most important thing. You have to look like your manager. Yes. (laughs) Behave like your manager. Do something that is impactful at their level in a way that doesn't get their nose out of joint or make them feel threatened. Correct. This is gold. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. This is just great. That's what I say to my staff. And it's not just, you know, it's almost like inception is don't come in and say, what is it about the emails that are dragging me down? You've got to say, what's the next level? Is it the volume of them? Well, what is it that's giving me zing? Is it talking to people? Is it feeling a sense of impact? Is it delivering? Is it the sense, you know, for a large number of people, it's the fact that they're presented with this problem that frustrates the hell out of them for a day or a week or whatever. They're criticised by their partner because they're absent over the dinner table because they're thinking about that, you know, how do this bloody thing? Yeah. I just 
and then they get a breakthrough and then they've learned and that's that's really important to them. So you, the most important thing you can do early career is sort out your personality and what yeah. it is that where your sweet spot is and what your unique strengths are and then make a beeline for things that are going to give you that. Not the role titles. Yeah. Experiment with people leadership. That's a really important thing to sort out relatively early on. Do I want to be a people leader? Am I? How do I get the opportunity to even understand whether I'm going to be a good one? Because you'd much better to have an informal opportunity with that and work out that you don't want to do it than end up in a permanent role where you're kind of backpedalling and not doing well, so to speak. So look for the um, stretch objectives. Challenge your manager to challenge you. These are the sorts of things that are just really important for um, helping you position yourself for a future, as I say, a future-ready career. And then working out what you're good at. What is it that you're good at that nobody else can do? Because I can guarantee there's nobody else like you. So how did you do that? Because one of the things that stood out to me is that so early on in your career, you're able to see so far ahead. So essentially, it's a, it's a slow-moving industry where yeah. I have to wait for people to die. <laughs> And then I can't be myself in terms of my yeah. sexuality and who I really am. And, and you, you said, this is not the place for me. I can have with my passions and my interests, I can have much better prospects and a much more enticing or exciting career in other areas. Yeah. How did you both have the insight, the introspection to work that out? And then... Yeah, well, well two things, right? Yeah, so yeah, I didn't, sure. didn't always get it right. Of course. I, went, I went from teaching into academia, yeah, right? Yeah. So, but it was just a commitment, I guess, to, to... Look, one of my fundamental philosophies is we spend a third of our lives asleep, yeah. a third of our lives doing what we want to do, and a third of our lives at work. And by God, if I'm bloody spending a third of my life on something, I want to bloody enjoy it, you know? <laughs> so I want to position it to something where I'm good at it, where I feel like I'm doing well, where I feel like I'm adding value, where I'm making an impact on other people's lives. And I think we're absolutely all entitled to that. But what I was saying before about, you know, unique strengths, I think one of my, I think there is no life that is untouched by trauma in some way right. or some kind of challenge. And my challenge was being gay. And anyone that's kind of had to come out and look in the mirror and recast something that is in some people's minds very clearly socially abhorrent and face into that and discard the need for social acceptance. How strong are we as yeah. people moving forward? And True. I thought if I can't take that trauma in some way, make sure that it's a wind behind my back and not a headwind against me, then I've kind of lost the pain, the meaning of the pain. So it's really a way of recasting that. And so one of the things, and also as a woman in technology, it is pretty draining. I've literally had the experience where you say something in a meeting and the meeting falls silent and then the guy next to you says it and everyone goes, great idea. <laughs> you know, I've literally had that and it's what's oh. so, not just so shocking is that it's happened. It's the fact that nobody else has noticed that it's happened. You know, and you're sitting there going... I live in a parallel universe and, yes. you know, I think that's really one of the things I would say about women is that we have to be quite resilient. And I really love this word. It's come to me more recently, shrewd. 
So it's got a very negative original connotation, but the feminist in me really loves it, and that's the shrew. It's like that was socially unacceptable for a woman to have opinions, but it gives us this lovely shrewdness and not in a cunning way, but just like turn this lens that we have to look at the situations that we're in. And, you know, I would say that your listeners are pretty intelligent people. They're in an area, you know, that already requires a lot of education and probably a lot of privilege coming to it, that we can turn that intelligence, not just to think carefully about how we're placing ourselves in the world. And, you know, your career is just so important. So if you're not carving out, if you think about it in a week, if you've got 40 hours, what good is not spending any of those 40 hours on reflecting on how effective you are and whether you're positioning yourself correctly and how effective you've been in your career. And I guess for me, the ability to throw away social convention and just think, what does success look like for me? Not does what does success look like for the world, because we pretty much know that. That's climbing the corporate ladder and ending up in a powerful position, probably as a CEO. But I see people in those roles and I'm like, oh, my God. So I won't go too far. It could be a career-limiting move. Crap <laughs> about that. But, um, <laughs> you know, and so very early on I sort of thought success for me is having opportunities that I want, is having influence, is being in roles where I feel successful, yeah. is being challenged, is growing, is being respected. All of those things sort of come together when you find the right role for you. And, again, I think it goes back to what you were saying about, well, how did you move into technology I never sort of identified as a technologist. I just, it was like that, I went into that world because it was what required me to do for me to execute on my mission. And my mission had already been set. And that was, I wanted to be an information professional. And I wanted to bring together the capabilities that I saw were not doing well when they were divorced from each other. And I wanted to build for some people the sort of team that I would have loved to have worked in. You know, these are the sorts of things that really, really excite me. But then to get here to the point where you have that opportunity and essentially realizing your, your dream, to get here, you went into an environment that really tested you that really both from I'm thinking about issues around diversity yeah so from a gender perspective from a sexuality perspective from oh it's almost like running towards (laughs) war (laughs) (laughs) do you know what I mean yeah Yeah. I do know what you mean yeah Yeah. of of course that war now that you put it that way I'm thinking what what did I do it's amazing it's amazing that you have so how was that journey for you yeah It's been tough. It has been tough at times. I think whenever anyone sort of gets to the upper echelons of an organisation, the narcissistic personality starts to come into play, the toxic personalities, the people that are more intent on recruiting the resources of the organisation and directing them towards their own Mm self-empowerment than the mission of the organisation and dealing with people like that. And I've learned how to survive in those environments, but I've also committed to myself that I will not face into them directly, that I will protect myself, so to speak. So, yeah, I guess it has been tough and I'm quite a resilient person and that's where my resilience comes from is the, the experiences that I bring into, you know, from my personal life. But I think at some point everybody has to grapple with and we may as well get to it, the imposter syndrome. And at some point, I think everybody has to reach a point where we just say, I'm not scared of this. You know, I'm not scared of you or 
I think that's part of the key for me is just not taking it as seriously. And I've been in the luxury, you know, I don't have kids and I admire women that are raising a family as well as having a career because they, they face the ultimate challenge, really. I still don't think that we as a community are structured to support them properly. But uh, I think the mantras, I've got three mantras that I say to myself to help with the imposter syndrome. And the first one is, who else but me? So it sort of puts the role or whatever the task is back in us in a the box of humanly possible for yeah. that it's a way of saying well you know I could never do that job but then if you think well who else could do that job better than me who would be the better applicant than me and you start to go through the people that you think of and probably what will turn out is that most of the people that you'd think could do a better job are already doing a job at a more senior level so they're already promoted and so you're, yeah. you're starting to think, okay, maybe it is a bit feasible that I could do it. And then the second thing that I say is how hard can it be? And I think about the sorts of roles that I've done and the jobs that we have are immeasurably complex and you're never going to be able to do a job without some critic somewhere yeah, thinking that you're not doing this or you're not doing that. Yeah. And so switching that off unless it actually is your manager, <laughs> is an important kind of you know, mute button to be able to reach out to. Obviously, your manager's opinion and uh, their peers are a very important one to take into consideration. And then the third one is, I'll put it in cleaner language, but who really cares about it anyway? It's like, who really gives us stuff? You know, what, what's the worst thing that can happen if I make a complete schmozzle of it? Yeah. I'm going to be okay, you know. There's worse things that can happen and we're lucky with our, I mean, maybe in some areas with data science. But certainly I'm not going to kill anyone if I don't write interface specifications into the warehouse you know, with all the correct rules or something along those lines. So, you know, it's not life and death, the sorts of jobs that we're doing. So just, just don't take it that seriously. Look at it, be conscientious about it. No, those mantras have been very helpful for me, but I think whatever works for other people, but it is important that we've got some way of recognising the inner critic and responding to the inner critic in a way that is helpful to us. Yes, yeah. that's so. really good. And how do you think we can make better environments and organisations for diversity of, of people and, and thinking? Yeah, that's a really complex question. Obviously, yes. again, one that I'm really interested in. One of the things I've tried to do is experiment with different ways of people to engage in the workforce. And it's not just gender diversity, it's diversity of thought and background and age and a whole bunch of stuff. And um, diversity, for me, I think the best way to look at it is if, there's some birds in a forest and one species of birds only eats seeds from this pine cone of a particular tree and another species of birds eats insects and seeds and, you know, nectar and grass and, you know, <laughs> whatever, is that diversity will flourish when things are going well. But if we have a bad year in terms of a famine, one of those populations will collapse. And in my observation, I think the tipping point for women in any organisation or any kind of pocket of the organisation is probably 25 to 30%. So if you're in a team with less than 30% female, the lens becomes very male, the dialogue becomes very male. And, you know, in order for you to be within that, you, you kind of either, you become every woman to the men in there. Yeah. So you're the person I can cry on your shoulder or the 
I hate to say it, but the girlfriend or the, you know, so you're the archetypal female in that team and that's really wearing because you're doing all of the kind of emotional work that's going on and it's just a hard gig to carry moving forward. So you can kind of tell the female-friendly organisations and pockets within the organisations and it's important to make sure, I think if for the guys that are listening, there's a lot of men that are very supportive of it but don't know how to move forward with it. One thing is... If you've got like five teams and five women, put the women all in one team. Don't spread them out so that you've got gender diversity in every team because you're basically just isolating the women within those teams. So that would be one thing that I'd say. Another one is let women engage in the workforce in a way that they need to flexibly. One of the things, this was a really, I'll give a call out to one of my team, Nahid, um, who really gave me a great lens. And, um, you know, I'm trying to be the, future ready manager so to speak and modeling never sending emails after hours because I think it sets a bad tone and any expectation that we're always on and etc etc I said to my managers one point we had a very bad Thursday night and I was sending emails and that's one of the things I say do what I say not what I do um you know because I'm the boss so (laughs) One of the few times where I'll say this, but I do not want you sending emails after. And she said, look, I've just put my child down to sleep. I've had a broken day and I just really wanted to get through these things before I come in in the morning. And it was just such a beautiful lens for me. It's like, okay, that's a really great way of opening up, you know, an opportunity. It's just a different lens of the same thing. We're trying to achieve a a worker-friendly kind of environment. So I think that those sort of things is just being open to different ways of engaging in the workforce. I've always felt that women returning to work after five or seven years out of having children, complete untapped talent pool, untapped. You know, if you want some outstanding people, bring them, support their journey back into the workforce because they will absolutely be outperformance, I believe. Yes. As long as you can be flexible with the way that they want to come in and supportive of their loss of confidence as they've stepped out. Because I, I would challenge anyone to step out of the workforce for five to seven years in such a fast-moving industry yes, without feeling insecure about the journey back in. Yep. And um, as technologists, one of the key capabilities is tolerance of not understanding 70% of what gets said. language that we'll never understand and things move so quickly so yeah it's just supporting that journey back in I think that's great it's it's really great and what got you through the tough times on your journey in in this front so essentially as I'm sure that you faced many tough times (laughs) at work and and obviously if there's any that you would like to share then obviously uh, feel free to do so but what got you through those challenges, those walls that push back, the not having your ideas heard. Yeah. What what kept you going? Oh, look, I, going through this a little bit at the moment, you know, it just comes in waves where it's just really, and I think only people that have experienced discrimination really know how deeply it cuts, you know, is to deliver something and have it judged less because of not the quality of the work but because of the perception of the fact that, you're not going to be able to do that. That's the one thing that does characterise my career is kind of being underestimated and just trying to be tolerant of that. I'm lucky in that I've got a very supportive partner who's just 
recharges the batteries when we go home and there's a lot of positive talk and self-reflection has been very helpful and I've always kind of been somebody that does reflect on things to make it more efficient you know just trying to be in a very positive frame of mind about not giving up control and not giving up the fight so to speak but to again use our, our strengths to our advantages so I think as women we have got some strengths it's just as I say is everybody's got something in their background that they can use as an advantage and they've got to turn it into a, a tailwind not a headwind yeah. but it's just a matter of continuing to look at it until you can find that right lens so it might be helpful if I give some more examples about how I feel that I've been able to use being a woman to my advantage yeah. more than anything else so one of those was to I guess switch off the need for adulation in the same way that men get it and just say, well, it doesn't matter if people are not particularly recognising that that was a fantastic piece of work as long as I feel proud of it. That's one. Another one is um, just using our strengths to our advantage. So one of those um, actually came to me when I was working with you at ANZ and um, it was interesting because I was in a room and I was watching these two men debate with each other and it was an incredibly heated argument that were turning red in the face and voices were getting louder and I was usually the mediator in these sorts of things being the kind of female calm things down and I, I took a moment just to sort of actually observe and then I, I thought about what it was that they were saying and if you were to write down what they were saying you would think these people are actually really strongly in agreement with each other. <laughs> And then it sort of tweaked me to this idea that within any conversation there's two levels that are going on. There's an emotional exchange of ideas, sorry, there's an intellectual exchange of ideas and there's an emotional framework. You mm. know, there's an emotional landscape that's playing out. Maybe it's a power struggle, maybe it's a grievance, maybe it's a this or a that. I thought men are not very strongly encouraged to think about that they're not very yeah. when I think about men one of their disadvantages is that they've got a very rigid rail that they walk down in terms of the emotions that they can express in the workplace yes and those emotions are very often anger or something along those lines and the full range the full rainbow of human emotional experience is unavailable for them to demonstrate you know and that's that gets back to that kindness it's not very often associated with the high-delivering manager. When you said, mm. okay, what does an effective manager look like? Kind wouldn't be one of the words that comes to the fore. And yet I can pretty much guarantee that compassion has to be there in the background somewhere for somebody to actually, on, in practice, be an effective manager. And so I thought, well, the emotional reading of a room is one of the things that we're quite sensitive to and quite good at and how do I use that for my strengths and that's what then sort of started me realizing that there was actually a rich set of information here that I could be tapping into that helped me understand the politics the plays the nuances what was going on I just started looking around the room and it was a really interesting you know as to to actually who was making eye contact with each other and things like that you know as my brain wasn't quite in the game anymore but it was sort of watching the, the social interactions and yes you know, I think for women, that's something that we could be using to our strength a lot better than yes. what we're encouraged to do. The resilience around what does achievement actually look like. And again, I'd say that what the organisation knows as power 
and what actual power is going on in an organisation can be two different things. And sometimes the power holder is a very quiet, you know, influence in dialogues or decisions that people are not quite aware of. I seem to be talking about power quite a lot. It's not actually my fixation, but I've, I've kind of studied it because I needed to in order to survive. It is a quite interesting thing. And I think just shifting towards looking at the environment as though it's a bit of a game. What are the rules here? How are things actually playing out? You know, everybody thinks that we're playing soccer, but we've got goalposts here that look like Aussie rules. So do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like yes. well, that's an advantage if I've seen, actually gone and looked at the goalposts. Mm. So, yeah, that would be all I could say about that, really. Having that focus on the emotional side, being able to read the room, almost going to a meta level yeah. of what's actually happening. Yeah. How did that advantage manifest in your career since since, since then? Since then, yeah. Um, well, I can give you an example that happened three years ago. Yeah. I was dealing with a very difficult, somebody that had been let down by technology and, and had a chip on their shoulder about technology, and I'd come in and, as I said, you know, I'm not house of technology, I'm house mm. of data. But this And... Um, it eventuated with this person really being quite belligerent in a room of people towards me. And that time I thought, right, I'm going to call the behaviour. And I said, you seem very angry. And he literally shouted, I'm not angry. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was that moment that he, he just kind of lost credibility because of you know, the contradiction there that everybody could see. And yes. he'd lost his professional edge with that. And I think that was a really good example of where you can use the emotion back at them. It's like, here, let me draw attention away from intellectually what you're trying to argue mm. towards the emotion, the emotional state that you're feeling so that we can all think about that for a minute. Correct, you know? Correct. yeah. <laughs> and understand what it is that you're bringing into the room. Yeah. So that, that was kind of a lived example of how that has played to an advantage from that point, I guess. Wow. I would like for all men to be able to bring their whole selves into the organisation. That's the full spectrum of kindness to aggression, to whatever it is that you need, but being in control to bring the right emotion to the table. But the thing is that as men, we don't even allow ourselves to see our whole selves. No. <laughs> I really like the way that you put it that there's almost these guardrails that we think that we need to stick within when it comes to mm. our emotions and saying, like, these are the three things that I'm allowed to, to feel, feel and show and end of list. And anything else, I need to try and shove it into one of these three. Or go into the toilet and cry there. Yeah. You know, or ring my wife or take it home or, or don't even talk to anyone about it. Yes. You know? And... Um, we're just talking about different models that people bring and a lot of it is defined for us. So what we're talking about, that right rigid rail, there are strengths and weaknesses to that. So the weakness is that you can't bring your whole self in, that if you do, you have to do it by stealth. And if you do that, you're, you're going to risk looking like something different from that right rigid rail. Correct. So that right rigid rail is what everybody understands as success looks like at the moment. Yeah. So what I'm doing is subverting that model by showing a different route. And, you know, my risk is now, well, I get to be myself, to yeah. be more authentically myself, but I'm going to have these experiences where people are going to look at me and go, well, that's not what we understand success to look like. So yeah. I don't know what it is that you're doing over there, Annie. It looks good, but, you know, you just keep going. And 
you know, if there's one thing I'd encourage people to do is to define yourself. Don't let be defined by received wisdom. Just go out fearlessly. And that that's again goes back to the know who you are. The yes. more time you invest, because nobody else can understand you, nobody else can understand your inner world better than you can. And it's your work to do. And it's the most important work that you need to do to whet your appetite for where it is that you want to be or what tasks you want to be doing. Even within the you, the job that you're doing at the moment or whatever it is that you're studying, you're making these little micro decisions as to which micro opportunities you're going to leap on yes. and which ones you're going to let pass you by. So what I would say is don't look at your career as a series of stepping stones and you're just going to make from this stone, I've got the option of these three stones, which one am I going to choose? Look a lot further towards the far bank and think about the person that you want to be, the daily life that you want for yourself and the career that you want for yourself because they're, they're much better questions for you to be grappling with, I think. Yes, definitely. How do you keep a, an eye out that far into the future and what couple <laughs> of things do you look for? No, that's a good there? question. I'll give you one of the best resources. I tell everybody this, so I'll tell you as well. There's a website called itjobswatch.co.uk and it's a kind of a summary of roles that have been advertised in the UK and I believe that the UK is probably 18 months to two years ahead of us in yeah. terms of career and profession. Mm. Go and have a cruise of that and look at what skills are in demand and what skills are not in demand and what types of jobs are being advertised and what's hot and what's falling off and how are things playing out there. I think that's a very important thing. The second important resource is LinkedIn. So there's a number of roles that I've had came directly through LinkedIn and not it was more a tap on the shoulder than it was me looking for work. As data professionals, if you don't think LinkedIn okay. is an important resource for you to have your professional information up, I think you're missing a trick there increasingly. So um, it's just going to get more and more intelligent about the way it's identifying people. Pretty much most of the social networking patterns tend to say that there are it's not a linear progress of influence or networking. It's more exponential. A lot of organic sorts of systems tend to follow exponential curves rather than linear curves in terms of growth. And so it's very important that you have quality connections on your LinkedIn profile. Make sure that you're looking at how other people are describing you and looking at the sorts of roles and the sorts of companies that other people are working for. It's a free resource that everybody should be using, I think. The third one is just the, the meetups and the online communities and even this podcast and things like that. You know, a lot of the information's coming from there. But there's so much hype in our industry. You need to become hype-weary. It's probably the best immunity that you can get from going down a cul-de-sac and, you know, there's been so many instances I can give you of where things have been the next hot thing but have then just died. So um, as I said right from the outset, it's much better to specialise in a capability. What is it bringing out in you? What sorts of skills is it bringing out in your personality more than have you learned the syntax of Python? That They're far more important things to be thinking about. And how is that sort of as a pattern in your career portfolio? How is that building up? Is it a hodgepodge of different things or is it starting to form a consistent picture of where it is you've specialised and what it is you've, you're good at so that you can identify yourself strongly as you know, a specialist in robotics or mm. a this or a that rather than a data person 
you know, a physician or a, <laughs> a surgeon. That's true. And that's definitely what we'll be needing more and more. As I said, I think it's just exploding at the moment. I mean, you can, you can see that just in the technologies that are there to support different, different aspects of our professionalism. So we stand on the brink of a new world. I have no doubt that data will be the new gold, as they've been saying, but also an increasingly important career. And I think technology will be increasingly seen as a tool to execute against that rather than a career in and of itself. The people that influence society tomorrow will be the people that can read the data and make recommendations and decisions on the basis of that. So you're the people of tomorrow, make sure that you're approaching it with a pioneering spirit. How are you establishing yourself? What fingerprints do you wish to leave for people that come after us? How are you going to establish our profession and the specialisms that exist within the profession? Because just like you're doing with this podcast, Data Futurology, there's going to be so many opportunities for people. It's just a matter of knowing what, where your passion is and therefore how you execute against that passion. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I think that is an excellent note to wrap up Thank on. Thank you. So much for your time. This My has pleasure. been a blast. Yes, I love talking about myself. Oh. So. <laughs> well, love talking about data. Well, I am happy to listen <laughs> on both fronts anytime. Thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. My I can't, pleasure. I can't thank you enough. <laughs> that brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.